The Gillette Murders, an unsolved murder case out of Corpus Christi, Texas, where Gary and Stephanie Gillette were brutally murdered in their own home with the hatchet used to trim the Christmas tree. So there was a hatchet laying there in the house. And so my dad was struck, I believe, four or five times in the head. On He must have been sleeping on his stomach because all of his wounds were to the back of his head. My stepmother had to have been sleeping on her stomach because all of the wounds were to her front part of her face. Um, she was struck probably seven times. That's one of the Gillette daughters. She and her sisters now on a mission to find their father and stepmother's killer. Before we dive into the case, I want to remind you this is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. After the episode, I have a shout out for investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. More on that after the case, the Gillette Murders. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for episode 23, The Gillette Murders, which takes us to Corpus Christi, Texas, meaning Body of Christ in Latin, and also nicknamed Sparkling City by the Sea. It's located in the Gulf of Mexico, and if you were looking at a map of the U.S., it's in the tip down towards Mexico. Corpus Christi is home to the fifth largest port in the U.S., population of about 325,000 people. There's an air naval station, there's several notable museums, and of course, Texas A&M. In the 1980s, Corpus was home to the Gillette family. 34-year-old Gary, 22-year-old Stephanie, and his three daughters from a previous marriage. Gary had just started a new business. Life was good. So Corpus Christi, especially in the 80s, was a big, like, oil-booming kind of a, a place. Not necessarily Corpus Christi itself with the oil, but all of the outlying places, um, Beeville, Alice, Goliad, a lot of landowners out there were having wells put on their land to drill for oil, and so a lot of oil was coming in, and that's kind of what my dad did. I mean, he stayed very locally, South Texas. That's Christy Rangel. She was just 11 when evil entered their home. Her sisters, Shay and Candace, were just 8 and 14. Almost immediately, we knew something bad had happened, but my mom walked through the door and she had her sunglasses on and she lifted them up and I could tell, like, her eyes were just puffy and red. And I said, he's dead, isn't he? And she said, yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's almost like we already just knew. On December 15, 1985, Gary and Stephanie were found dead inside their home. Stephanie struck repeatedly in the face with a hatchet. Gary struck in the back of the head. I've seen a copy of the autopsy reports, and the Gillettes were also stabbed hours later with a large knife. When police arrived, they determined that there was no sign of forced entry. Stephanie's purse was missing, and Gary's classic car also gone. But the house was locked up, Gary's company car still in the driveway, 
all the lights in the house turned on. There was the murder weapons and DNA evidence collected, but still no arrests, which is why this case stands out to me. This case should be solved. Thank you for um, talking about this story. I know that it's probably difficult to, even this day, talk about. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be in this household and to be around um, Stephanie and your dad? So being around Stephanie and dad, my dad was a very strict parent. Um, Stephanie was more, she was, of course, 10 years younger than my dad. So she was a little more easygoing and, you know, always kind of sided with us when, when she could. Like if we did something wrong, then, of course, she's going to side with my dad. And, of course, there's going to be a punishment or whatever else. But, but um, my dad was the type of person, like, if he told you to do something, he should not have to tell you twice. So he um, was strict, but he was very loving. Um, like, always, you know, told us how much he loved us, always complimented us. Um, he was he was a good dad. I mean, he was a really good dad. It's just, the, the crappy thing is, is that, like, it's so hard for me to, like, remember things about him because it's been so long. And that's one of the things that bothers me so much about all of this is that that was, like, just robbed from me and my sisters and my grandkids and my nieces and nephews. And so, but he was um, very funny, um, very, very funny. He always liked to joke around. He was always playing jokes on everybody. My dad was a very charismatic person and left very lasting impressions. Um, that's the kind of guy my dad was. Like I said, Stephanie was just the most lovable, nicest, honest person. And, of course, you know, you always hear all of these stories about wicked stepmothers and all this other kind of stuff, but we were actually extremely lucky. Um, Stephanie was probably, like, she taught me how to be a great person. She took us in like we were her own. She did not have any kids of her own. I remember one time when Dad was working because he was starting up his uh, his little company and so he would have to go out a lot because he was basically the face of the company he owned I think 73 percent of the company and two of his friends like shared the remaining percent and so in order to get his business up off the ground he he was gone a lot checking oil rigs you know whining and dining customers doing things like that so were they well to do kind of um they were getting there I remember probably a few months before this happened, going and looking at houses because the house that they were actually murdered in, they rented. And I remember looking at houses and places where I thought, oh, this house is huge. And I mean, I remember that. So I think his business was starting to pick up where it was getting to that point. He never spoke about finances around us because of course we're young and that's really none of our business. But just by some of the things that we did, I could tell that, you know, maybe things were going really good so let me ask about um, that and what, what you've learned about um, Stephanie and your dad during that time. Did they have any enemies? Was there anything bad going on with the business? Not that I know of and not in everybody that we talked to. Um, because, you know, so whenever this happened, there were so many rumors that flew around um, as to exactly how they were killed, who did it, who could have done it why it was done. So, I mean, there were rumors from, you know, business partners doing it to obtain the business 
to drugs. So it was to, honestly, there was even one story that I had heard that um, their maid and her husband did it. I mean, it was just such so many things going on and nobody knew, you know, what happened. I mean, they kept a lot of information to themselves. So even in the newspapers, like some of the things that were um, stated in the newspapers were not always correct either. So things are going good. um, The family's looking at houses, maybe moving. Um, What time of year is it? What's going on around from what you remember? Because you're a little girl. Okay, so when the murder happened, actually it's kind of ironic because I was just um, setting up company Christmas parties and personal Christmas parties, and this year just happens to fall the same way it happened back then. So it was December 13th, Friday, and my father was supposed to pick us up. That was his weekend. He called my mom, and he told her that he had a business Christmas party to go to, actually a couple of them, and so, you know, he would... Was it okay for him to wait and just come pick us up Saturday morning? And mom was like, yeah, that's fine. So I guess him and Stephanie had attended, I know they had attended a Christmas party together, but had gone in separate vehicles. And so he had asked one of his friends, and this is information that I just learned, that he had actually asked one of his friends to make sure she got home, and he went and met the suspect at another place. And... um hung out there and then him and the suspect and his date went back to my dad's house and that's the last anybody heard from my dad is um they actually called his he actually called his answering service um between anywhere between 11 o'clock in the evening to one o'clock in the morning they you know calling checking in seeing if he had had any calls that he needed to take care of and then I guess the suspect also used the same answering service back then um, because he was a constable like half the year and then did, worked for refineries and did PI work or something to that effect. So he needed that service too. So he had supposedly sup- spoken to them and said, hey, I'm just going to stay here at the Gillette tonight. Um, if you need me, just call here or whatever. Um, and then... So your dad is... Um, is he away from Stephanie or is he with Stephanie? So at this point, I, I am not totally sure. At this point, I don't think Stephanie has actually gotten there yet. I think she came home a little bit later, not too much later. And um, from everything that I've heard is that supposedly my stepmom and dad got into a little bit of an argument. I don't know if it's because somebody was like parked where she needed to park, but that just to me sounds weird because she wouldn't get mad about something like that. Like that's just not how she was, but that's what's been told. And that the suspect's girlfriend or date, let's say it was his date because it wasn't his girlfriend, was sleeping in my sister's room. She had like passed out. And Supposedly, she woke. he woke her up and said, some bad shit's going on, so we need to leave. And that was around, I don't know, if they talked to the service at like 1230, that was around anywhere between 1230 and 2.30. And they left. And then supposedly, he went back because she left her jacket there to go and pick up her jacket. And he told the police whenever he was interviewed that nothing seemed amiss. 
but yet he said my parents were asleep. He was there. They all went to a party, right? Mm-hmm. And then they all came back to the rented house. Mm-hmm. And then he, um, this, this suspect, you say, uh, wakes up his date, whoever he brought, who's asleep in a spare bedroom, mm-hmm. and um, says, we need to leave. Yeah. And then they leave. Mm-hmm. And then he says he comes back for a jacket, right. but yet um, nothing was amiss. And um, your dad and Stephanie are asleep. But yet, wouldn't he have to ask them to get in the house? Well, he says that, well, he had a key to the house. And that's the other thing. There, When my dad and my stepmom were found, there were no forced entry. And you had, I, I completely remember, the front door had to be locked from the inside deadbolt with the key. Like you couldn't, it wasn't one of those regular deadbolts where you can just twist it. You actually locked it and unlocked it from the outside and inside with the key. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Has this person been named a suspect by police officially? This suspect was named and and was in the papers. There's many uh, articles I can send you that he was actually indicted, but then they said that they didn't have enough evidence. So they weren't going to take it before the grand jury or something to that effect because of the double jeopardy. So if they didn't have enough evidence at that point in time to fully prosecute and get the outcome that they were hoping for, then they just dropped it all together at that point in time. And that's the last, pretty much, anything has ever been done. You know, I, I know that this is difficult, but, like, what what had happened to um, your dad and Stephanie? So if there's, I know that there's different and conflicting reports. What, what have police told you? Okay, so back then I had heard that they were shot, and then I heard that they were, like, just, basically mutilated what ended up happening because I ended up obtaining the um, autopsy report. Um, my father was, so there was a hatchet laying there in the house because we were supposed to be doing the Christmas tree. And I guess he had used it to trim the bottom of the tree to, to fit into the stand. Right. You and, take off the little branches right, and then right. it fits in. Right. So they, what they called it was a hammer hatchet. So it was a hammer on one side and a hatchet on the other. And it was like a four to five inch, like rounded kind of a blade. And so my dad was struck, I believe, four or five times in the head. On He must have been sleeping on his stomach because all of his wounds were to the back of his head. My stepmother had to have been sleeping on her stomach because all of the wounds were to her front part of her face. Um, she was struck probably seven times, and then um, they got a butcher knife out of the little set that's usually, you know how you have those butcher knife sets that's in the kitchen that has the little blocks that right. all of the knives go in? So they pulled the biggest one out of there, and then they um, stabbed also. So I know that there was a stab wound that had punctured my dad's lung because it filled up with blood from what this autopsy said. Um, I can't remember exactly how many stab wounds each of them had. Well, that's horrible. And, I, and I'm, that's horrible. I'm sorry. Where, where are you and your sisters um, that night? So my, I actually went and stayed the night with a friend to help her babysit some kids. And my sisters were at my mom's house with my mom. So okay. the next morning, we 
I get home early because dad's supposed to come and pick us up. And so we try calling his home phone and his home phone is busy. And so we're like, okay. So we called the answering service and they said, well, we haven't heard from him since, you know, last night. And so we thought, okay, that's weird because my dad, we joked around. We kind of said he was born with a phone in his hand because he was always on the phone. So mom said, you know, let's just wait a little bit. So throughout the day, we kept trying to call his home phone and it was busy the whole time. And periodically we'd call the answering service and they said that they, you know, never heard, still haven't heard from him or whatever. And so we're getting nervous and scared and telling mom, you know, you need to go and check on him. And she said, you know, that's, I, I can't go and, you know, I'm not going to go mess with your dad. And he's an adult, you know, him and Steph are probably just doing something and they, they forgot. So let's just give them a little bit more time. If it's like this tomorrow, then we'll, you know, we'll go over and we'll, or I'll call your uncle Mike is what she said. She'll call my dad's brother and see what he thinks, what we should do. And so um, my sister was ha- was going to the movies that night, and she was going to Corpus, so she said, you know, Mom, I'll just stop by and see if he's home. So whenever Shay gets over there, she said that Dad's company car, the one I guess Stephanie was driving, um, was out in the cul-de-sac because he lived at the end of a cul-de-sac, and that the garage door was up, and my dad's convertible was gone, which was the convertible he got from his dad that he restored it was a Buick Electra, and, um, like, he loved that car. But And all the lights in the house were on, but there was, like, every door was locked. Every door was locked. Every window was locked. They walked around everywhere, couldn't get in. Shay left a message. Um, she wrote a little note on on a piece of paper and left it on Dad's car that said, Hey, Dad, it's about 9 o'clock on Saturday. I came by. Please call us when you get home. We're worried. So she came home and she kind of told us what was going on. And then, of course, you know, we're all mad at my mom. Mom, you need to go over there. We need to get in. And she was like, I am not breaking into your dad's house. You know, just wait until tomorrow. We'll call your Uncle Mike. So she called my Uncle Mike the next day because everything is still the same. And my uncle was like, you know, I kind of had a bad dream. Something's going on. Please just go over there and just, just check on him. He can't get mad at you. I'm telling you to go. So by the time they got there, the person who was last to see him was the first one to call people. They were already bringing the bodies out by the time my mom got there with my sister. And um, my sister and my mom said that because my mom knew the guy. And my sister said, though, that the guy had kind of like no emotion, was just like emotionless. Like, and supposedly he was the one that was saying, I haven't heard from him on Saturday. I haven't heard from him. You know, y'all need to come over here. They broke into the house to go and see. And I'm thinking, why the hell would you break in whenever you've got a key to the house? So, right. Yeah. It's just really weird. Like nothing added up. In June of 1986, a deputy constable who knew the couple was indicted on two counts murder. A print inside the recovered classic car allegedly matched his. Family members say he had a key to the Gillette home, and he was the last one to see them that Friday night. So, yeah, so it's one of those cases where he was the last one to be seen with them. And then if you read the transcript that I was able to obtain from, um, like, what they were, what they had originally indicted him on, it looked like he was trying to make a timeline to cover himself. But after, because originally I always thought, you know, I don't, you see so many people who are wrongly confi- uh, convicted of stuff that they didn't do. And so my thought process was always, I just want the right person to be charged with it. I don't want somebody that really didn't do it to go to jail for something that they didn't do. 
I, whenever I was 21, my ex-husband and I had gone into a bar that my dad had frequented back in the 80s that was still open. And so he and I went in there, and I just happened to hear them say this person's name. And so, of course, I'm, like, all scared. And um, so the waitress comes over, and I'm like, who is that sitting up at the bar? And she said his name. And so I was like, I like I never would have recognized him. I just heard the name, and it just, you know, gave me, like, a weird vibe. So I don't know where I grew the courage, but I walked up to him because I figured, you know what? If he didn't have anything to do with it, then, then I can, I should be able to tell. I should get a vibe, whatever. So I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, hi, so-and-so, you know, my name is, I'm Christy Gillette. I'm Gary's middle daughter. You know, how are you doing? And his face just turned white. And, like, he could, like, was stammering over his words. Didn't hardly say anything to me. And, I mean, basically, our interaction took all of maybe a minute and a half. So I just felt after that, like, you know, if I had been wrongly accused of something, then I would want to profess my innocence. You know what I mean? Like, instead of like, oh, my God, I've been caught. That's what it seemed like to me. Especially to the victim's family because, right. and, and he knew you guys. Right. Well, supposedly he knew us. I don't remember him. But everybody else does. So that's the weird thing. Like, I, all of my dad's other friends, I knew we very, we hung out with a lot of his friends, and it's so weird that he never brought this one person around us, but yet he was mingling with him in other circles. So, it, you know, it, to me, it's just kind of weird that that he was never around us whenever everybody else was. Talk to me about, like, mustering up the courage and, and talking to him at the bar. Uh, I have been a scaredy cat all my life, and I was a little bit of a scared child even before all of this happened. After this happened, it just kind of like I was terrified. I always had to sleep with the lights on. I slept with either a baseball bat or a knife beside my bed. Um, so mustering up the courage to go and say something to him was like, I don't know if it's because I actually had a, an alcoholic beverage right before and maybe that's what gave me that, you know, that liquid courage to go and do it, but I was scared to death afterwards, always, always looking over my shoulder thinking, you know, what did I do? Did I just open the door for, you know, him to come after? Cause I had children at that point in time. Did I open the door for my family to be hurt or, you know, so I don't know. I, I looking back on it, I don't even know if I would do it again. Like, I don't know if I could do it again. Where does everything stand right now? So right now, um, my younger sister is, and my older sister are very, um, <laughs> let's say they're way more vocal than I am. Like I said, I've always been the scared one and I had finally gotten to a point in my life where I wasn't so scared. And, um, my younger sister and my older sister, Candace is my youngest sister. Shay is my oldest sister. And they have gone over the years, many a times, like they went to go and see the crime scene photos and asked me to go with them, and I just couldn't. There's, like, no way I can I, – I don't want to see that. I want to remember them the way I want to remember them. Um, I just didn't think that I could sleep after that. But they have been the biggest advocates in trying to get this case solved. I, like I said, I didn't want anybody coming after me and my family, so I was more passive about it back then, and now I'm just pissed about it. I just want somebody to do something, and I want the person who's responsible to be – held responsible and I want justice. 
Of course, we're never going to get any closure because I don't think the person will ever say why it happened. But I, I want to know before I die. And so Shay and Candace have gone to the police several times, and there have been so many different people that have been involved with the case because they changed the people throughout the years of who's over that department. And they basically just treat us like we're a nuisance, like we're bothering them. The police still refuse to work with anybody, and they hate talking to us. And the DA supposedly is working on the case now, but of course, that was said back in May. We haven't heard anything from them since, so I have no clue what's going on. They Nobody communicates with us. Well, I think it's very brave to keep the story out there and to keep talking to people like like myself. I mean, what is the, what is the hope right now? The hope is is that we get, gain enough attention that somebody's going to work with somebody. I mean, we've had some pretty important people with great testing facilities and stuff like that holding out to them saying, here, if you just talk with us, we'll give you all of this so we can do better DNA testing. We can do this. We can do that. And they still just won't do anything. And I don't get it. To me, that's like something's either being covered up. I know that the guy was a constable back there, but I don't believe that the police this day and age, you know what I mean? It's not like they should have a that kind of a code. And I and I and I would hope I love the police force here in, in, in my town. I think that they work really hard and I totally support, you know, what they do. But right now it to us it looks like we just don't care and we don't want to solve it. Or or if somebody else comes in and solves it, then it's gonna take away from us. Well you know what, we really don't care. If it was your parents, wouldn't you wanna know it doesn't matter how you find out as long as it's done the legal way and it, you find out. You know, I mean, it's... What evidence is there that um, could be tested that you know of, at least? They're, they still have the hatchet, from what I was told. They got rid of the car. So the car had a fingerprint of the suspect on there, and it looked like it had been recently wiped down. Um, but yet, that one fingerprint was there. They have the knife still, and I don't know what other stuff that they have. I know that the hatchet was placed in the bedroom where it's the, the guy's date was sleeping under the mattress and that they tried to clean the knife off and put it back in the knife holder and that whoever did it had to have rinsed off because there was blood in the bathroom, I believe. But there was no blood anywhere else. And my dad and my stepmom were pulled off of their bed. Again, this is happening in 1985. Christy and her sisters are just 8, 11, and 14 years old. Christy tells me she couldn't sleep for weeks. So I was scared. I, was, I, I hardly ever went for sleepovers. I never wanted to be out past a certain time. I was always looking over my shoulder. I was, I was scared to death because there was also, you know, one of the newscasts that had said one of my dad's neighbors, where it happened, had gotten a prank call saying that the Gillette girls were next. So we grew up scared to death. Like I would have vivid nightmares. And um, I remember one, I, it was almost like I was awake and somebody coming into the house and uh, standing over me with a hatchet saying she's the Gillette girl and like the hatchet coming down on me. I mean, those, that's how I grew up. How has the holidays changed for you? I mean, I know that your life has changed, but this happened so close to Christmas time. So there for a long time, it, um, it really put a big damper on Christmas. 
Um, Christmas wasn't the same. My mom really did go out of her way and my grandparents to try to make it like so special every year because of, you know, just the memories. And now we're back to, you know, dad would want us to enjoy this because dad loved Christmas. You know, we have parties with all of the family and friends. And so I just try to make sure that I go out of my way to make Christmas special because, because it shouldn't be about the bad thing that happened around that time. Absolutely. What is your message to, to the killer? I just want to know why, like what on God's green earth would make you savagely hurt and kill two people? Like what was, what happened that was so bad? I I just want to know what, what clicked in your head to make you do that and take away three girls' father, a stepmother, a daughter, a son, and ruin the lives of so many people. I just want to know why. What what was it? I, I mean, there needs to be an explanation because unless you're just pure evil, there has to be an answer to that question. Today, Christy and her sisters on a mission for justice. They run a Facebook page called Who Murdered Gary and Stephanie Gillette? I'll post some case photos and documents on my website, truecrimedeadline.com and social media accounts under the same name. Now, if you have any information in the case, please call Corpus Christi Police Department at 361-886-2600. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now for a couple reviews. Thank you, investigators. This one is called Obsessed. I love, love, love this podcast. Matt is professional, informative, passionate, and dedicated to the truth of these stories and the lives of the victims. I've binged all the episodes, and I can't get enough. My only criticism is that the episodes are just too short. I'm left wanting more. Subscribe now. You won't be sorry. That's from Rebby16. Thank you. Now, this one comes from Barb Blair in BC, Canada. Love the podcast. Interesting cases. Matt has a super voice and delivery. Perfect for binging. Definitely worth a subscription. Thank you. And thank you, investigators, for an amazing first season of True Crime Deadline. Until next time. <laughs>